18, 1920, the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution granted women the right to vote. August 18, 2020, Kamala Harris, an African-American woman, is nominated to be the vice presidential candidate of the Democratic Party with Joseph Biden, the presidential candidate. 1896, Mary Church Terrell, a black woman, begins organizing what became hundreds of black suffrage clubs all over the United States. 1913, thousands of women marched on Pennsylvania Avenue demanding the right to vote. African-American women are allowed only at the back of the parade. Welcome to the Usable Past. I'm Marie Nahikian, your host, and I'm joined by my co-host and producer, P.J. Ryan. And what happened in the Usable Past that informs the present? The founding mother of contemporary black politics, Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm, is what happened. And we've been talking a little bit about how things kind of revolve and seem to come back home to roost. And I'm really excited to be joined also by Jean Seymour, who is a journalist and a writer and has written extensively about culture and politics. And finally, um, Barbara Bullard, who is an old friend, but is an unusual woman that has been charged from time to time with protecting the legacy of people who we consider very important. So we're going to talk a lot about that and a little about who those people are. Um, So just this week, Kamala Harris, an African-American woman, was nominated by the Democratic Party to be the vice presidential nominee in 2020 with Joe Biden for president of the United States. So what's changed? And what's happened in, the, in, in our history that we need to figure out how to use? On July 13th, 1972, a lot of people have forgotten that an important Brooklyn woman, Shirley Chisholm, became the first African-American presidential nominee and female Democratic presidential nominee at the Democratic National Convention. That was in 1972. Congresswoman Chisholm received 152 first ballot votes at the Miami Beach Democratic Convention. Shirley Chisholm was a Brooklyn firebrand politician and the first African-American woman ever elected to Congress. So there's some connections here of the role that African-American women um, have had in determining the future of this country. And certainly today, 2020, it will be African-American women who make the difference. So... Barbara, you've been um, you've been working in these veins and in these worlds as a, as an entrepreneur, a publicist, a writer, and a producer, 
And one of the one of the ways that I love seeing you described is to say that you are a social innovator and a catalyst for cultural transformation. So is this a moment of cultural transformation? Well, the first thing first thing that comes to me is um, catalyst for change, right? Because when you say the when you when you repeat what's actually, you know, my mantra, it's like um, I, I feel that every moment that I breathe that I'm I'm here to support um, the legacy of our icons and those that we may not know about. Because um, every day we pass by someone that's done something totally awesome in the world. You know, everyday people doing awesome things. I guess mm -hmm. the the real question, the heart of it is, how do you how do you take on this kind of mantra? How do you take on this? responsibility that you've been involved with in terms of of how you gather people together to support and in this case support the legacy of congresswoman shirley chisholm i mean just this year um we have a new sculpture going up in prospect park um I mean, I can only imagine how she must be looking down to watch what's going on in her old neighborhood. Um, Black Lives Matter Plaza in Bed-Stuy, where you live. So, so how, is, how, is this a, how has this become so much a part of your life every day? Well, I can say that Shirley, because we call her Shirley, or Miss Shirley, um, she's definitely ever so present with us. She's very, she's still very proactive in terms of what's happening here. Um, you know, pops up, there's, there's moments of her that pops up even when I'm walking the streets of Bed-Stuy, because that was her neighborhood. I mean, of course, her district um, was much larger at that time, because it was a combination of two different uh, areas that's covered by two, two Congress people now, presently. However, Ms. Chisholm, Powerhouse, and how I became involved, you know, in terms of um, promoting, supporting legacies that have been systematically washed away is through art and culture. Because in art and culture, you know, when we're working with artists or we're creating ideas, we're tapping into uh, moments that may have been forgotten. And within those moments, um, there's times we identify with, you know, actual individuals that have done some pretty cool things. And in reference to Ms. Chisholm's legacy, um, it came from working with different visual artists and uh, one of the artists that I worked with for many, many years, I'd known him forever, um, was the youngest court reporter artist for the Hurricane Carter trial in Patterson, New Jersey, many years ago. He was a teenager. He was brought out of school by the columnist Jimmy Breslin, who was a friend of his art teacher. And his art teacher said, you gotta meet this guy, right? Uh, this kid. And they met. And Jimmy Breslin ended up um, meeting Al Johnson, the artist, as a young, young teenager and started taking him to Patterson, New Jersey, to the Hurricane Carter trial where Ms. Chisholm 
one day showed up and the only thing she wanted to know was, what is this kid doing not in school? <laughs> that was her question. Uh, fast forward many decades later, that particular artist had a dream about her, painted her face, and she passed the next day. From that experience, um, and I'm, I'm kind of giving you a short version of things, um, because I worked with other artists and, and helped to develop uh, programming to support adult uh, artists. One of the other artists worked for the post office, and I sent her the image, and she said, Barbara, you wouldn't believe it. They're going to name a post office after Shirley Chisholm. Fast forward, I ended up meeting uh, the legislative aide of Ms. Chisholm for over 40 more years, one of her closest friends, uh, her financial chair, <laughs> he was all the things, um, went to meet with him with the painting in hand in the rain with the artist, and he fell off his chair when he saw the image cause it, it, because it emanated so much of her essence. And from then on, I realized this one man, Bill Howard, had been carrying the torch for Miss Chisholm forever in spaces that people had really washed her legacy away. Um, fast forward, the artist Al Johnson and I were commissioned to create uh, the seven foot painting in Brooklyn Borough Hall um, that's permanently installed, the oil on canvas. During that process, I didn't do anything for eight months but work on Ms. Chisholm's legacy in order for that particular image to hold the essence for, for generations to come of the work that she's done, the places that she's been, the people that she's inspired. Um, and through that, we um, opened a studio here in Brooklyn and elected officials, people, community folks that knew Ms. Chisholm. We had the studio open to everybody in order for them to participate and to ensure that the painting reflected this, the, woman, the woman who she really was, right? Um, so that's how it all kind of happened. From I'm giving you an example of how things kind of projects come to me. That's an example of it. Uh, a couple of things. Uh, I was 16 years old when Shirley Chisholm was elected in 1968 to Congress, mm -hmm. and um, I wasn't in Brooklyn. But because something like that happened, if you're black in America, these things just have a way of spreading out. So. None of that was obscure to me, and nor was the fact that of her significance of her running in 1972, four years later. But she wasn't the first black person put in nomination for the presidency, um, or even the vice presidency. The first one was Channing Phillips, if you'll recall, a Brooklyn minister who, went, who worked in Washington, D.C. in the late 60s, yeah. the National Coalition. His name was. I knew Channing Phillips. I know you. I know you did. Yes, and his name was placed in nomination in 1968, just for the fact of having somebody place. But he was. She was the first African American woman. Yes, but not the first African American person. Was she the first African American person to receive delegates? No, he was. Okay. I'm just asking. No, they had they had delegates pledged to him. I think like 50 something. I have to look it up, but I think it was like 50 something delegates that were put in that ballot that year. I think that was because uh, there were some delegates in Washington who had been pledged to Bobby Kennedy, uh -huh. but couldn't find a place to go. They didn't want to go to McCarthy. They didn't want to go to McGovern. They didn't want to go to Humphrey. So they they said coalesced around this coalition that uh, Reverend Phillips had formed. Again, he was born in Brooklyn, but he most of his his name was made in Washington D.C. 
that same year, that same year, um, you'll recall, uh, Julian Bond, who was only a state legislator from Georgia, uh, was a was a um, key leader of the anti-war uh, Democrats. And when it came time to nominate a vice president to running it to run with Humphrey, you know Humphrey, I guess they already decided he had already decided on Edward, Edward Muskie, but the anti-war people wanted Julian Bond to run, mm. even though at the age of 28 he was way too young to to be considered for vice president because the minimum the minimum age was 35. But you know. They put his name in nomination. He he didn't go along with it at first. He was just you know he was just responding to the. Well, the, but what year was Miss Chisholm? Seventy two, nineteen seventy two. She was nominated in seventy two. But what year was she elected to Congress? Sixty eight. Sixty eight. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that same year, nineteen sixty. So Barbara, did you know her? I mean, you know her. You just said you spent eight months trying to figure, you know, trying to make sure you knew who she was as you were developing this painting mm-hmm. that had been commissioned for Brooklyn Borough Hall. Mm-hmm. So, but you never met her. No, I never met her. And um, when Bill Howard started bringing, like, a huge suitcase of some of her papers and her personal items... That blew my mind. I was I I felt like why isn't anyone talking about this woman? Right. You know, it was sort of like I couldn't understand why in schools why isn't why isn't her name everywhere? It, it was shocking to me. Wow. And how long has it taken for her to even kind of come to the surface of everyone's lips again. I mean, 68, 72, this is 2020. Well, I've been working with Bill, um, let's see, that was in 2005 when she passed away. And then the actual, um, actually I should say that the image that that I showed Bill um, prior to working on the Burl Hall uh, project um, ended up becoming one of the symbols of the post office um, that's named after her in Bed-Stuy. So the actual uh, postal service purchased limited editions of that image and disseminate, disseminated over 200 uh, limited editions within the community to community leaders um, with the U.S. postal symbol in the logo on it. Um, but I would say that 2005 is when myself, that I became someone that knew that this was going to be a legacy that, that I, I would want to contribute to as long as it took. And so I've been working on Ms. Ms. Chisholm's legacy for about 15 years. And, um, I was working directly with Bill. Nobody would, you know, nobody would listen. We would go into spaces and we mentioned her name and they would turn their heads. We would go into schools um, and mention her name and the child, the youth had no idea who she was. We had to do full presentations. The, the actual, a lot of the teachers never ever spoke of her. We had to actually educate a lot of the teachers who she was. Um, so we were in different spaces across the board from schools to, 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 
um, museums to, um, to community spaces. And the interesting thing about it as well is that there's so many um, walking angels, I would say, that worked with Miss Chisholm and are still holding a space for us to, to, to be proactive in terms of, um, you know, sustainability in our communities. You know, a lot of them are in their 90s. Some are, are, are over 100 years old um, that are still alive in the community. What, what, I mean, other than being the first, the first African-American woman, I mean, what, who was she? I mean, she came out of the Bed-Stuy community, and she, I understand a lot of her legacy where she first announced she was running for Congress was at a community church. Mm-hmm. Um, but but who, who was she? What, who, what was her essence that made her so amazing? Um, I mean, even if you see some of what you see on film of her now. She was, had a, there was, she was so dynamic. Uh, I think it's, it had to do a lot with her Bayesian and Guyanese um, heritage and the fact that, you know, part of her childhood, she was raised by her grandmother in Barbados and then she came back to Brooklyn. She was born here, but she, you know, she lived a lot with her grandmother during her early years, um, received British education. Um, which was extremely important in terms of shaping her. I, this is this is my feeling. Um, and Susan, that, just for a second, it, it, wasn't that kind of what a lot of West Indian parents did in this part of the country in terms of educating? They sent their children back to the islands for the benefits of those education. That was that was that was pretty much the normal in those days, right? <laughs> That was normal in those days, right? Yeah, I would say definitely. And her father was a was um, followed Marcus Garvey, right? Um, and I think that you know the combination of um, her upbringing there, you know, in Barbados, and then coming back to Brooklyn, and you know, and she was very much influenced by her father, you know. So I think that a combination of all these things kind of put uh, extra strength in her. I mean, you know, sometimes we laugh because, you know, they, they used to call her the little lady from Brooklyn because she was very little and, you know, petite in size. Um, however, her power came from a source that came from her ancestors, I believe. You know, uh, two things. Um, as we were just briefly talking about, like, um, representation in general, right? Um, I'll say this, I'm extremely excited about the the work that's coming out and I'm glad that um, Uza Dubo is playing her, like beyond all belief. Um, the other question, I, the actual question I did have was, you know, you said that they don't really, you know, schools weren't teaching anything about her, um, people didn't know. Why, why personally do you think that is? Well, you know, I really feel that um, she was systematically wiped away from the American history, mm-hmm. and it was just—it was a systematic. Um, it was it, it, it was a structure coming from the White House that um, wanted to eliminate her. So you know, I, the most systematic way to eliminate a person if they're not um, being taken out physically is to eliminate their voice, eliminate you know, who, what, the work that they've done, 
and to like really wash it away and and turn it into basically nothing or something that's not of significance. How long did she serve in Congress? She uh, she ran. She has seven terms in Congress. Amazing. Her, her last term was I think in eighty ended in eighty three I believe right. Mm -hmm. Eighty-three, yeah, I think so. Yeah, eighty-three. Seven terms in Congress. Right. Seven terms and seven terms. I mean, the 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 things that she uh, endured. Um, uh, I mean, she was spat on. You know, um, she, you know, she was called many names outside of her name. Um, she, you know, she was walking into a room, you know, not only was she the first African-American, but imagine walking into a room that's primarily white and male. In Congress, you mean? In Congress. Right. Um, a little of that comes up. Uh, it's interesting that this is happening now because uh, recently there was a, there was a series on, on Hulu, uh, Ms. America where she is one of the principal feminist characters depicted, and, and she has a very big role in that. And on the one hand, yes, she is given a great, her presence and her impact, not just on the movement, the feminist movement, but on, on civil rights and all that stuff is, is amplified, but also, you also see the way that she was marginalized from even within her own party. Because yeah. uh, one of the things that was forgotten about that race, people talk about, well, she, she ran for president, but how it ended and what happened was, was not a glorious chapter either for the country or for the Democratic Party because as that series mentions, and as I'm sure you know. Well, what, what did happen? What, how did that end? Um, the McGovern people, um, the McGovern people, George McGovern, the, the eventual nominee, uh, had asked her to to step down to, to release her votes, the votes that she had for the McGovern campaign to sort of bring everything to an end. And she didn't want to do that because, first of all, because I think she felt she still had a chance. Well, she had gotten it. what? How many, Barbara? 152? I think it's 152 yeah. delegate mm -hmm. votes. Yeah. So that was a significant number of delegates. Right. And she wanted to use that. I mean, I don't know if she had any hope of getting the nomination at that point, but I think she wanted to have, as she says in the series, I mean, her character, well, the woman playing, as, as, she, as it says in the series, she was trying to use that as a lever to help, you know, get certain things from the party, not just for women's issues, but also, well, mostly for women's issues, actually, because that's one of the things that she was hoping to influence. I was going to say, I mean, she obviously was a supporter of women's issues, but what were the other issues that that were a part of her her mantra in Congress? I know I know that that she had a real interest in children mm -hmm. and a big interest in education of, of children, but I mean were there were there other areas? I mean was she a part of the anti war? Definitely. Yes. Yeah. She was very uh, voice, um, voiceful, I don't know if that's vocal. a term. Vocal, vocal. thank vocal. you, <laughs> vocal. <laughs> um, she was very vocal um, in the anti-war um, issues. That's what I She was read. at the forefront, actually. Mm -hmm. And she was one of the few African-Americans, and I think 
as I understand it, she was a big influence on Martin Luther King's opposition to the war, that she was one of those voices that said to Martin Luther King, because, you know, at, at, during the civil rights movement, that, that we have to be anti-war. Yeah, yeah. And she was part of that, she was part of a wave of people elected during those, during those years. You know, there was her, there was Ron Dellums, there were, there were, there was a whole wave of, of, of a new generation of black elected, elected national office who were having an impact. And a lot of those politicians were very much against the Vietnam War. Totally. And, and got their, and got a lot of their power mm -hmm. or their, or their, their votes really. But because she was movement. a woman, yeah. she really did get marginalized. Yes. They totally, they like, it, it almost to me, when I, I feel it, like in my bones, it's like she was just squeezed. Like they, they, they came from all sizes, sides of her, and just wanted to just squash her. Something similar to what, what, what um, 45 did to Hillary when, on that debate when he just followed her all the way around stage. Yeah. and try to just minimalize her as much as possible. I, I agree. Um, but, you know, but you know what else I remember? I watched that convention in 72 on television, and, uh, and I, was, I was all in on, on McGovern, and I wanted rid of Eatniks and everything else. But, but after all that happened at Chisholm, at that convention, I remember the last night after the speech, and the speech ran on late because there were all these delays and everything else, but I stayed up the whole time. And when... After McGovern was finished speaking, and all the candidates that he that he defeated along the way came out for a show of unity, when she came out on stage, the biggest cheer of the night went for her. That, that, that was the biggest cheer of the night, and she and, and again she was a just a tiny woman, you know. She wasn't she wasn't she wasn't. She, I mean, she was dwarfed by all the the men who were standing around at that point. But when she came out. Everybody, and I'm presuming most of them women, screamed when she came out. She got the biggest ovation, even that even out outdid McGovern's, you know. And I thought to myself, and that's what, and that impressed me. I thought, wow, that's 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 power of a, of a kind that that I'm not sure anybody else on that stage could appreciate. Well, you know, it's interesting because what they used to do when she would go out on stage is the media would turn their sound off. Like a lot of the speeches that you, you may, it may not even be documented, but they would actually turn their mics off. Um, so you didn't hear what she was saying. So in but, terms of your looking mm -hmm. historically for information or records about her, that's when you realize that they just yeah. didn't bother to record her words. They didn't bother. They'd actually turn actually turn their mics off. They, and there's some there's some speeches that are not documented, um, you know, like with in footage, because they just shut it down. They just they just shut it down, you know, when she came on the stage. But she was so powerful that still to this day, I mean, we're just, I I really truly feel from my heart. We're just catching up with her. Her, her. She was a visionary, way beyond probably, mostly anybody that's like in America, you know, in American politics. Um, she was seeing what decades, decades ahead of time, um, and so I think that's why, you know, Jean, when you even say when she came out, people were cheering. I mean, imagine she was pushing for eighteen. That was the first year the eighteen-year-olds were able to vote. Right. And wow. she was, and she was at the forefront, 
of of her campaign strategy and she had she hardly had any money by the way okay yeah. in comparison yeah um but her campaign strategy uh she was the first to go to those eight, 18 year olds to go to those college campuses to get them involved on the ground to understand that their voices matter mm-hmm. and and today right now during these uh, days of the democratic national convention um, it's these young people who are making some of the most incisive comments about this particular election and when will they um, have the guts and the strength to put young voices at the forefront. Uh, people, these young people are, you know, it's like if I remember correctly, one of the things Shirley Chisholm really pushed was health care and pushing for health care and what is it now 2020 and young people once again are at the forefront of you know medicare for all um and being at, at, at and still that's not a part of the mantra of the democratic national party ah the insurance companies right yeah definitely i mean right. I mean, the young people and uh, millennials and Gen Z at this point. Gen Z, right. Right. At this point. (laughs) Um, They're the ones who actually have to, I think that they have to carry the brunt of this because they have to be on the forefront because this is their future, to be honest with you, in in my opinion. And what's different, and what's different, I think, because I've seen this wheel turn a few times by now, um, what's different between the young activists of my generation mm-hmm. and the young activists now, my sense is they have more of a sense of the future than our generation did. Because our generation, there was there's something of an apocalyptic edge to our activism, you know, that the world was going to come to an end unless we did, 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 did. There wasn't a lot of long-range thinking about we're going to have families ourselves. We're going to have children ourselves, and we're going to have to deal with this. And our kids are going to—you didn't hear that kind of talk among our generation, not really. That's because we had a, the, the, that generation um, was more assist, like we systematically already held that already. We yeah. had no, we had no vision of actually seeing that because we didn't know that. Because like now, even when even yeah. when Obama came into office, yeah, um, those young people during that time, right, you know, stood on the forefront, and right. those those are the same ones who don't, like we were just previously having a conversation, don't, haven't had the same vision as far as what can be. What's possible. Uh-huh. And, and that's, and, and when I think of people like Shirley Chisholm, and I think what's, even beyond the tangible acts that she did, what she was and who she was broadened the parameters of the possible. You see, you need people like that to sort of be there to give the people who are probably in their preteens now, to just look and say, okay, that's possible. I can do, be, mm-hmm. push forth that. And without that kind of without that kind of expansion of the imagination, of the imaginative possibilities, nothing happens. Nothing moves forward. So, and, and I think that what 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 again, so I think people like Chisholm, just as just as it's true, people like whether it's Adam Powell, or Obama, or King, or anybody else you can name. They, each in their way, expand. Jesse, certainly. Jesse Jackson, certainly. 
expanded the range of what is possible. And I think when you talk about Shirley Chisholm, you have to sort of put that as part of the, the legacy. I think. So, Barbara, in terms of, of your kind of work in gathering of information and, mm -hmm. and looking back, I mean, um, some of what I've stumbled across is that at some point there was a large cache of photographs of Chisholm and her time in Congress at Rutgers University that just got lost. Did that ever get found? No. And um, one of the things... And that, how did it get to Rutgers? Well, you know, it's interesting because what one of the things that, you know, I've been in conversation with, with um, several people is we need to honor and protect our legacies. You know, if it, you know, what, and, and I've been seeing it systematically in terms of how documents are, 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 are stored. Um, sometimes they're in basement, uh, people's basements of their homes, um, and, and, you know, with no archival, um, pro, you know, programming or, or policy uh, protocol, I should say, in place. Or realizing that the documents are important. Right. So in reference to Rutgers, um, I know that some of her papers were like kind of disseminated. Um, there's not really one house. Um, yes, at the, uh, the Chisholm Project in Brooklyn, they have some of her papers, but they don't house all of her papers. Um, so one of the things I was working with Bill is, is to try to find, and, and find you know, you know her papers. I mean, because when she was alive, she, they were being disseminated in different places. You know, she was just sending them to different places. Um, now it, you know, now Bill has passed. He's he's deceased. Um, and that's another story. But um, you know, that's one one of the things that the Shirley Chisholm Cultural Institute, which I'm the president of, um, we're we're actually going to really focus on. Um, identifying where her documents are and to to be able to at least have some type of protocol in place um, so this so, will never happen again. So that's that's really very interesting that mm -hmm. she took her papers and sent them different places um, didn't keep them all in one in one place and and that was true that evidently the some of the history from, what was it, the New Concord Baptist Church and Bed-Stuy, which was her church? Well, the Concord Baptist Church is the location where Ms. Chisholm announced her presidency for the United States of America. So, you know, and, and the Concord Baptist Church is like just an historic church for so many reasons, right? It's like the historic church, one of the, one of the historic churches in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn. Um, so, you know, when, when, even when, when um, institutions or churches go through different, I'm talking about in the black community, right? They go through different hands. Sometimes people that may have access to them don't even understand the relevance. Right. So then, therefore, here we go again, you know, documents get lost or, right. you know, or they get thrown out thinking they're not relevant. Um, I, and I know that sounds really crazy, but I'm seeing more of that than less. Well, um, I think I mm -hmm. think we saw that that was a that was how when they created the um, the National African American Museum in the Smithsonian, mm -hmm. a lot of those documents came out of people's houses. I know 
Uh, Jean, in your family, there's a real effort to try to, to pull together documents that were a part of your family's history in New England. Um, and I, I think that that's one of the things we need to tell people as they listen. I mean, Shirley Chisholm, you know, Miss Chisholm was so important, but there are people, as you started out at the very beginning of this discussion, saying there are everyday people who have done uncommon things like members of Jean's family and members of your family. We were talking just now about an uncle, PJ, yeah. that you have that had a historic role with the with Black Panthers. And I think that, that we need to let people know how important it is to preserve that legacy. I mean, that's something that's extremely important, and I stand firmly by that. Um, mm -hmm. Because, I mean, I found out at the moment, my, my aunt passed away, that she was one of the first nine to be bused to Madison High School. You mm -hmm. know, and then following my, my uncle um, in his situation. Um, and I think that there's so much that gets lost. Now again, I'm just speaking on opinion, um, but there's so much that doesn't—it doesn't get—it doesn't, get, doesn't move as quick or at all because people have lost the idea of who they are, holding on to their individual identity, passed down from generation to generation to generation. At some point, I don't know where it happened, but at some point, it's just like okay, forget the past. Let's create. Well, that's well, that's what well, that's what I mean by imagination. Because I think that if only when generations recognize what is possible can they begin to apply value mm -hmm. to those things that were neglected or forgotten. Like, we need to save this because someday someone's going to want to know that we were involved in this and we can go on and do other things that are just as important. If there's nothing, people, people say, well, it's putting on airs or it's being egotistical or something. It's not. What you're doing is showing to somebody who's not born yet, hey, look what we did. Look what you could do. Mm -hmm. That's the whole purpose. Otherwise, what's history for? You know? And you know, I have to say that has a lot to do with why, um, why I've done this podcast called The Usable Past, because it begins to document events that impacted people's lives in broad ways, in, in ways that no one ever thought of. And I know that one of the things that, that you've said in your writing and thinking is that um, you need to transform the story, not let it die. So you transform it into different, different mediums, different places. You were talking about arts and culture. I mean, so now there's a painting in Borough Hall, and there's uh, tell us about the sculpture that's been created. Well, the okay, so the sculpture is not finished yet, and due to COVID, it 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 was supposed to be installed like I think this year, but right. due to COVID, of course, it's not being installed as of yet. However, it's supposed to reflect, you know, Miss Chisholm from a from a standpoint that you can actually envision her from the sky right that's how i imagine it you know it's like it's tall but it's wide and you can actually get angles and dimensions um i can't remember the type of material they use right now but the type of the material the artists are using you can get reflections of her from the sun and and i find that really interesting because you know brooklyn is such a multicultural borough and Miss Chisholm's efforts were 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 for everybody. You know, she was out there fighting for the people. Okay, so be so 
to be able to see colors and and her image being reflected from the light and then it, it shifts changes changes you know um hues depending upon the time of the day i think that that reflects a lot of how she moved i mean she moved for, she moved for the people but she was she was also very light on her feet meaning she was she studied she studied her environment um she was um an amazing orator she you know she she studied the language you know of of our people um she was fluent in spanish um and she was out there you know um so i think that the sculpture will represent in prospect park such a beautiful place for all ages to come and to be able to talk about her um, one of the things that the institute the shirley chisholm cultural institute we're discussing and we're looking at is how do we um like tell her story tell her story because the story is endless um in a virtual way you know how do we document some of the or um the oral stories that we're hearing about how do we capture that in a way that it's almost like a time capsule that people can access and, and they can get strength and and understand that they they too can be a catalyst of change right I, one of the descriptions, and I just wanted to share this real quickly, one of the descriptions that I heard was that mm -hmm. the sculpture um, reflects Chisholm's legacy of seeking out and advocating for marginalized groups in her fight for equality, justice, and inclusion. Um, and that some of the seats in this kind of sculptural amphitheater or a theater space are going to be left blank. Um, they will include the names of some current kind of um, legacy of, of leaders and heroes, but that some are going to be left blank to be inscribed for the future. So is that is that kind of like her, a way of her saying, bring the children with us, bring the young people with us? I think that her legacy, and we're talking about the sculpture, but her legacy is the sculpture. The sculpture is her legacy. And it, and it kind of reflects how she always leaves a door open for us. She's, okay. you know, her work, if, you, if anyone takes time to even like just study one of her speeches or, or, you know, look at one of the projects that she supported or even her being just on the ground in the community, she always has the essence of, of leaving 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 a safe space where we can understand you know that we too are involved in this we are we are proactive um in terms of what the initiatives are and pushing forward in the community and that space there to me what you're describing marie um reflects her so much because you know for for there to be like a space where there's no names no that's our future mm -hmm. and that's what she's always fought for Right. Our future. You know, that's the idea of, of the imagination of, of someone younger saying, that's going to be my seat one day. Right. It's, it's beautiful. It's a, it's, a, it's a really amazing thought. And I, I'm still intrigued by, um, by your description of how her papers and documents got scattered because she gave them in different directions, probably for very concrete reasons at the time, but with no, you know, there was no recordation of 
why this went to Rutgers or this went here or this went there. So you're kind of like you're kind of like gathering you know, this big basket where you're gathering all this stuff together. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because it may come like it's not like we're going, oh we'll go out there and find sometimes the sometimes people come to us or we're working on a project and and it may be a, a person in the community say, Oh, I knew Miss Chisholm. Um, you know, she gave me my first job. I, that's actually happened. I mean, people will just walk up to me and say, tell me something that will trigger me to understand that she was working on something I knew nothing about. And then that's, what, that's where the research starts. Because <laughs> then we go, wait a minute, this guy here, he's alive and he's telling us this happened. He's got papers to show us we need to look at this. So we're still like trying to understand you know, the best process and play to be able to be available for, for the community to, to be, you know, for their offerings, um, because there's definitely a lot still out there. Right. That's, that's some, some of this, you know, oral history as well. Oh so. yeah. I would only imagine that the oral history is very rich. I mean, you described some of the people that knew her who were in their nineties and over a hundred years old and they, you know, we need to tie down their oral history. That's for sure. Yeah. In, in, in the spirit, in the spirit of Ms. Chisholm, um, I'm curious, uh, what was your defining moment? No, like knowing exactly like the actual moment that you were, you were called to do what you're doing. When I realized I couldn't stop. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. That's, that's, that's awesome. Okay. <laughs> that's basically it. Okay. That's right. And so it will, uh, it will continue to be your life. I mean, you've done, this with, you've done this kind of work with other folks as well, like Arthur Ashe and, and other folks whose legacies needed, needed to be brought together and mm -hmm. protected. Yes. Um, so thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for taking this on. And um, can we tell everybody to call you up if they know anything about Shirley Chisholm and find your basket? Go to bed and find the Shirley Chisholm basket for you to, to gather things together. Sure, definitely. My my phone number is... Oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh. She said, well, you are. Yeah, of course. I'll Absolutely. give you uh, 646 four three five one five five eight that's six four six four three five one five five eight so if you are a brooklyn person or not a brooklyn person but you have a connection with um a story a thought a memory a document um someone in your family and someplace in your basement that connects to uh, the Honorable Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm. You can call Barbara Bullard, who is the keeper of her legacy and has a grand basket that she's gathering everybody together. Um, thank you. Yes, please. I'd like to um, just read something really brief. Okay. Um, actually, one of our researchers, he's also um, a screenwriter on the film I'm working on, Ms. Chisholm, and he sent this to me this morning, and it's very short. It was actually written September 25th, 2009. This is after Ms. Chisholm passed away. And this was written by the Congressman John Lewis. 
Um, Dear Shirley, from your days as a teacher to your election as a New York Congresswoman, you have been an example for all Americans to follow. As a student at Brooklyn College, you fought against racism and injustice. As a teacher and later as a New York State legislator, you worked to provide better training for students and increase funding for schools. As the first African-American Congresswoman, you broke barriers and served as a tireless advocate for minorities, women, and children. And as the first African-American woman to run for president, you demonstrated your refusal to accept the status quo. You are one of the founding mothers of contemporary black politics, paving the way for thousands of African-American elected officials, including President Barack Obama. This nation will always be indebted to you for making it a more open and inclusive society. Thank you for your committed and dedicated service to our country. Sincerely, John Lewis. Thank you. This has been the usable past. And nothing is more of the usable present today as we face a presidential election with an African-American woman nominated to be vice president than being able to know the usable past that Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm has given us. Thank you, Barbara, and thank you for your work. Thank you, Jean, and thank you, PJ Ryan. The Usable Pass is sponsored in part by the Greater New York Arts Development Fund of the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, administered by Brooklyn Arts Council, BAC.